Can I thank uh, Johnny and the, the girls for leading us in, in worship, which is so appropriate and so beautiful and tied in so wonderfully to our text for this evening. Uh, I want to start with two prayers that I have for us collectively. I don't know all and each of the hearts that are here this evening, but my prayers would be for each of those individual hearts. Here's the first one. Uh, my, my dad's here this evening, and one of the passions that we share and always have shared is that he always used to read uh, stories to my brother and I at nighttime. And there were loads of different ones. He loved the C.S. Lewis. We got some Roald Dahl, things like that. But one of my favorite books that he ever introduced me to was a book called The Dark is Rising by an author called Susan Cooper. It's a brilliant fantasy book. And it's all about this battle raging between the light and the dark. And there are seven signs. And if the dark managed to possess these seven signs, well, that means that darkness and death and all of the things that follow with that win, all truth is gone. All hope is lost. But if the light win, if they possess these seven signs, well, those who are in the light have the truth. They possess the truth. And all darkness and death will be defeated. And I feel like John is doing something with this in his gospel. I feel like he's saying, if you, the individual, believe that at this little place called Cana, that Jesus Christ was able to change the makeup, the constitution of the water into this brilliant wine. Or if Jesus, when he went round different places, was able to make lame people walk or blind people see. If Jesus really was able to, at a gathering of more than 5,000 people, to take a small amount of food and to create an abundance, if Jesus really was able to change or push aside the, the natural laws, the laws of nature that say that you can't go and walk on water, I feel like John is saying, if you believe those things, if you believe what I've recorded here, if I believe, if you believe what I've recorded about Jesus bringing a man out of a tomb four days after death, then you possess the truth, the absolute truth. So prayer one is that each of us would possess that truth, that reality. And prayer two is this. All the way through John, if you look at the life of Jesus, his driving motivation and his guiding, or his, his, his guiding force, I suppose, it all comes down and hinges on the glory of God the Father. Everything that he does, his words that are said, his actions, his actions, 
They are in communion with God. So even though, and we're going to see this tonight, even though he loves his friends, even though he is imminently and closely involved in our lives, even though when you are a friend of Jesus, you're a friend of Jesus, and that's the way it is. His overarching desire and regard is for his Father's plans at his Father's timing. So my second prayer is that each and every one of us would understand, would come to get and understand the sovereign will of God and therefore the actions of Jesus Christ through that. Um, I, I, this is a wonderful passage. So when, when Pastor uh, Peter uh, said, right, who wants to do this? Who wants to do these different signs in the evening? And no one put their hand up. And I thought, okay, I'll go first. I want Lazarus. I want Lazarus. Why? Because I love wonderful climaxes. Uh, one of my favorite films, uh, I hope this doesn't make you think less of me, uh, is uh, an old film uh, by a director called Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and the film is called, it's not Psycho, don't worry. The film is called The Birds. And The Birds is utterly terrifying. Nothing happens in it for the majority of the film. People walk out of shops and the camera pans around to like a bunch of seabirds looking at, at you. And there's this air of menace underlying in this film. And it builds and it builds and then finally the climax. And it's terrifying, it's brutal. The birds start to attack people. I'm sorry if you have a fear of birds, and I didn't really think of that when I was doing the analogy. The birds start to, to dive in and to attack people. And it has such an impact on you. I remember the first time I watched it, and uh, I remember going out of the house, and I don't know, there was like a blue tit or something just sitting on the grass, and you find yourself sort of running away from it, don't you, you know? But that's what I love about climactic moments. John 11. This is the climax of Jesus' miraculous miracles and signs. But it's not the end. What began in this little wedding finishes poignantly, I suppose, in this funeral in Bethany. And there is a wonderful connection there between the two. Because in each of these signs that we see, there's a hopeless situation. Utterly hopeless. We've run out of wine. It's a different context, yes, but we've run out of wine. There's nothing that we can do here. And the loss of a great friend. And in both of these situations, there's an expectancy upon Jesus, a hopeful expectancy that he will work where there is hopelessness, if that makes sense. That's what we see in John 11. And it starts off, actually, with the most sad little poignant lines. Lord, the one you love is ill. 
It's a moment of intimacy, I think. Um, I, it tells me a lot about Jesus. Um, I know that he had a, a, a good relationship with his friends and a strong relationship with Lazarus. And there's that sort of, if you use the Greek, uh, sort of philos, philo, there's that sort of, in a sense, brotherly love clear in that relationship. And then what does Jesus do? And this is so important for us. He announces that actually Lazarus's illness is for the glory of God so that God's son would be glorified. God is going to take this situation and he is going to reveal his life-giving power, his life-giving nature through it. And so, I want to take you through four aspects of the Lazarus narrative. Jesus' response to the news that he hears about Lazarus is for the glory of God so that God's Son may be glorified. Jesus stays for two days. And it sounds, you know, on the surface, if we didn't know Jesus, it sounds as if he is being in some shape or form culturally offensive to his friends. It sounds as if Jesus is being unfeeling. It sounds as if he is ignorant of the pain that his friends feel. It sounds like he is dishonoring them in some shape or form. But that isn't what is happening. For with Jesus, there is always logic and reasoning in decision-making. And I think the reason as to why Jesus doesn't turn up in Bethany until the fourth day from Lazarus dying is actually seen in verse 15 there, if you have a wee look at that. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. We were talking about this last week in our preaching course, and Hugh Mills uh, sort of put a comment across. And the comment was, quite rightly, of course, in Jewish thought, on the fourth day after death, the soul would depart the body so the, there was that obvious uh, sort of break from or disunity between body and soul. And what that would mean is that anyone trying to attempt some sort of resuscitation or a reviving of someone who was dead for that amount of time would have been utterly impossible. In fact, it would have been bonkers, quite frankly. But isn't that the God that we serve? The God who wants to glorify his son, who desires that people would have faith in him. And so he opens up this supernatural context to what is about to happen. It's a wonderful moment. Jesus' response is logical and absolute and in tune perfectly with what 
his father desires for that moment. And I want to say this as a first application for us this evening. Something I was thinking about today. Prayer, persistence. My friend Jimmy was doing a wee uh, talk on that uh, uh, earlier on today, actually. We need to learn a persistence and a patience in prayer. Now, I hope I've, I've come up with these ideas myself. So, uh, I, I, there's an issue here, and then there's, there's something that we, we want to work on in our prayer lives. Uh, the issue is called the smart technology prayer mindset. I think that's my idea. I've never seen it before, so we'll go with that. The positive thing is an Isaiah 55 prayer mindset. So a smart technology prayer mindset we need to move away from and an Isaiah 55 prayer mindset we need to have. That is, when we pray often and we know people who are sick and we have that person in our family who is ill, who is dying, those people that we know are friends, and you pray with a smart technology mindset that is now instantly, Lord, instantly, in this moment, directly, absolutely, in my time, act. You know what I mean by that? Pressing the the, the Instagram and all, it comes up straight away. It's almost as if in your desperation or whatever you're trying to force God to, to act in that moment. But you have to have that Isaiah 55 prayer mindset. You have to realize that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that his ways are not our ways, and that the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than ours, and so his thoughts are than ours. We need to realize that when we pray, that we're praying to a God, yes, a God of love, but a God who is transcendent, who, who is outside and often acts outside of our time, space, and matter. We need to realize that. And Jesus' actions here, he doesn't go for two days. He's in tune with his Father. He's in communion with his Father. That's what we need to be praying for and thanking God for. There's this beautiful, uh, I really like this wee, um, this quote, this is from MacIver, uh, We prayer. God really does know and understand. He knows our anger and he knows our pain. But God also loves us so much that he doesn't take shortcuts. And then obviously with an obvious nod to Lazarus, sometimes he must stay away for two days. Jesus' response is for the glory of God and that his son would be glorified. Number two, Martha's declaration glorifies God's son. And if you follow just in the scriptures there, You see, Jesus, at the right time, decides that he's going to go to Bethany. But it's actually this lady, Martha, who meets him first. She takes the initiative, and she goes to Jesus. Now, strange a little bit, 
You're in your first week of mourning and grief for the loss of a loved one. And what normally happened was, and it's quite similar, I suppose, to, to how we would experience this. You would stay in the house. You would sit on the floor. People would bring to you uh, love and sympathies and lots of different things. Food, a very important one. People would bring food to you. You were not able to prepare food in the house. It would have been considered unclean. So people would have brought food to you. It was a week of grief and mourning that first week. And Martha comes out of that scenario, out of that situation, and she seeks out Jesus. And I really like Martha, I must admit. I love her busyness and I love her determination. Do you remember in Luke 10, uh, there's that lovely wee passage where uh, Martha and Mary, Jesus is there um, at the house um, and Mary's sitting with Jesus and listening. Uh, And Martha, I, I don't know how this looks, but she's panicking about getting things prepared and presumably going in to get food prepared and just getting annoyed at Mary because Mary's not helping. Mary's in listening to Jesus. And she gets a bit of a gentle rebuke from Jesus. But I must admit, I love Martha's busyness and determination and that comes across here. But that is not why she glorifies Jesus Christ. It's her wonderful faith statements here in the text that glorify the Son. Will you hear these? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a very matter-of-fact statement. I don't think there's a tone of annoyance there. I, I, I just genuinely feel that she is, 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 is just saying this. She means it. She knows it. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What faith. And then when Jesus speaks, and they have this conversation, which I'll mention a little bit later on, about resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? And this is the best of all the faith statements. I believe we cannot gloss over this. She says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. It's a parallel reaction actually to Peter. Do you remember in in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, who do the people say I am? Some say Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets but who do you say I am? Peter says, you are Christ the God. It's a bit like that. Martha's faith, she doesn't understand the whole resurrection thing. That's not a slight honor, I don't think. But her faith is developing. She uses the Greek, and my Greek is not wonderful. So it may sound a bit weird. But she uses the Greek, ego pepistoikia, I believe. Is that the right pronunciation, Pastor? Ego pepistoikia, I believe. I believe you are the Messiah. 
Now, here's why this glorifies God's Son. That's John 20, 31. And John 20, 31, I believe, is why John wanted to write this gospel. These record of events are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs, they're signposts. They're pointing directly to Jesus. The Son of God, his identity, the fact that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, that is what John desires for the people who are reading. He wants each of us to commit ourselves in faith entirely to the Son of God without question. He wants us to see the Savior that he witnessed and that they witnessed. And he wants us to experience that salvation as well. That is why Martha is so important in this. That moment of faith And Jesus is, well, he, he comes across Mary. And Mary gives a similar response to Martha. And Jesus is moved deeply. It grieves him. And you have that famous verse that everybody knows, the shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. He weeps. Maybe because of the grief, of a human grief that he feels for the loss of his friend. He snorts, the Greek tells us, he snorts at death. Why? Because, as John Stott says, death is unnatural, unpleasant, undignified. Death is an enemy. But do you know why else he weeps? Because all the way through this gospel, John has recorded time and time again six signs to date, or around about that. Miraculous, awe-inspiring, clearly, clearly showing that Jesus is the Son of God, clearly showing that Jesus is the Messiah, and all he gets often in those towns is ignorant responses of unbelief from people. I think there's an aspect of that in the, the, the deep, his soul being moved, the deep grieving. But Martha, she doesn't show unbelief. I believe you are the Messiah. And if you go to verse 41 to 42 there, he does this wee prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that you may believe, that they may believe that you sent me.
He doesn't cry, Lazarus, come forth before he prays. He desires that such faith would be seen in the eyewitnesses of this event that is to happen. Like with Martha, he wants there to be seen a great intervention from God. He wants God to intervene in people's lives. He is about to be confirmed as the resurrection and the life. And so number three, Lazarus is raised, glorifying God's Son. And Jesus calls Lazarus, come out. And John describes it precisely and wonderfully. Hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. For me, the description makes it even more miraculous sounding. Can you imagine someone wrapped as tightly and professionally as that, walking out of the tomb when they're alive? But this man, dead four days, walks out, comes out, wrapped in all of those things. And surely now that statement that Jesus made, I am the resurrection and the life, is beginning to make sense to the people who are there. We don't see in Scripture lots of these types of, I call them, resuscitations, revivications. We don't see lots of this in Scripture. Sure, saw it with Elijah, Elisha, a couple of other ones as well in the New Testament. But any ones that we see in Scripture, they are all pointing to, anticipating Jesus Jesus' death and resurrection, his resurrection from the dead to give us eternal life. The Jews did believe, as Martha says, that there would be a, a general resurrection in the future. But they don't quite get what Jesus is at there. They don't quite get what he is saying there. He comes and he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he's pointing to the great resurrection which is going to happen. He's pointing to his own resurrection. Um, and he doesn't contradict himself. See where he says, if we just journey back to 25 to 26, he says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Um, I, I don't know about you, and this is a, a sort of feel, even when I'm in school, every couple of days, um, someone comes to me and says, this person is ill, this person is sick, this person is dying. 
this person has died. I don't know about you, but it just feels as if it's happening more. Friends, physical death and physical illness is an inevitability. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But here's the thing. Because of Jesus, we can believe that one day there will be an actual physical bodily resurrection. We will be resurrected and brought into the presence of God, into the presence of Jesus Christ, and it will be for eternity. It will be for eternity. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and all of these signs are pointing to this, We don't have time to unpack all the resurrection theories, but I just want to say this. At the beginning of Acts, it says, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is witnessed by historians and eyewitness testimony and recorded in Scripture. That is why Paul says that Jesus appeared at one point to over 500 people. And these people weren't hallucinating. That in itself is implausible. Doesn't make any sense. It's why Peter in his first sermon, his first apostolic sermon at Pentecost, preaches the resurrection of Jesus. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives the most wonderful explanation of and discussion of bodily resurrection. He was the forerunner, the first fruits of resurrection. And we as believers, I believe, will follow suit. What wonderful truths. Friends, if you're Christian or unbeliever or whatever, I genuinely believe that there is more than enough evidence to argue that Jesus conquered death. In fact, I consider it to be one of the greatest facts in history. And because of this, the present order of things, this death and this suffering that we experience is not the end. It's not ultimate. It won't last. If you're interested... We don't have the time. But all of these men write with passion 
about the truth of the resurrection. All of these men write zealously to display that truth to people who don't know, who have never seen. Lee Strobel's life was changed. A journalist, an investigator, all of these men are investigators. Gary Habermas, Josh McDowell, there are books out there. Lee Strobel's Case for Christ and some other books if you want to check out any of those. We don't have the time to do it now. But Lazarus's raising from the dead glorifies the Son of God. And we finish with this. And thank you to Jordan for reading all of, all of that. Where is Jordan? Thank you for reading all of that because this last part is so important. Caiaphas' statement is for the glory of God so that God's Son may be glorified. It's my favorite part of the whole thing. See, the Pharisees, they knew that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They actually say, what are we doing? Some translations say, what are we accomplishing? What they're essentially saying is, they have absolutely no control over Jesus whatsoever. Their leadership is completely ineffective. No one who has been around at this whole time can deny that this man, Jesus Christ, has been doing the most wonderfully awe-inspiring, mind-blowing miracles and signs. And it creates a problem for them. And the problem is this. If Jesus gains followers, there'll be some sort of uproar. That will lead to some sort of chaos. This is in the minds of Caiaphas, the high priest. There'll be some sort of chaos. The Romans who hate chaos will come in, sweep in, and remove those privileges from Caiaphas, etc. And no longer will they be able to be called things like the rulers of the temple and things like that. It's all about sinful self-interest. It's all about a better quality of life. That's what Caiaphas and the people are thinking. And so he makes this decision. And this is absolutely brilliant in glorifying God's Son. This is verse 50. I've maybe put it up here. I'll see. There it is there. This is what he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for all the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas is right. He actually speaks truth, but he doesn't even understand what he says. It is so ironic. He thinks that he has got this plan. We're going to get rid of Jesus. Jesus is never going to create any more issues. But he's a puppet simply in a sovereign plan that was worked out before this world began.
from eternity past, that Trinity relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit planned that the Son at the right time would take on flesh, would represent sinners, would live perfectly, would willingly die for all the people, for the nations, for the scattered people of God, for Jews and Gentiles, for the people of God. What he doesn't understand, Caiaphas, is that we needed someone to willingly, to willingly sacrifice himself for us. He didn't get it. He couldn't get it. Couldn't understand. And all of this for the glory of God so that God's son would be glorified. Friends, I finish as I started with a question. Do you believe that in this little place of Cana that Jesus changed the makeup of the water and turned it into wine? Do you believe that Jesus had the power and the ability to take a lame man, blind man, etc., and make them well? Do you believe that Jesus could miraculously create abundance from a lack of abundance? Do you believe that the laws of nature were pushed aside as Jesus walked upon the water? And do you believe that Jesus stood at a tomb and called out a man who was four days dead? I believe that if you believe that and I believe that, that we are in the light, that we possess the truth. This world hates truth but we possess a truth and the truth has set us free. I believe that you identify with Jesus as being the son of God, as being the chosen anointed one, the Messiah. If you're here this evening and you, you don't see it exactly like that, I want to take you to this and I urge you to consider this John 14 it's an, it's an incredible passage the first five verses are spent looking at eternity perhaps what heaven will look like but in verse 6 Jesus gives one of those I am statements And it ties in beautifully with the light of the world or the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've underlined, I am. I've underlined way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, when Jesus said that, when he said all of these I am statements in Scripture, he wasn't doubting himself, ever. He spoke with absolute assurance that this is just the way it is. That there is no other way. 
that any other way is living life like that blind man that you talked about last week. I urge you to consider this. There is only one way, only one truth, and only one life. And that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.